Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. The genesis for this episode, which will be about criminal profiling, both behavioral and geographical, stems from a discussion we had planned to include in the Another Dead End author interview podcast with John Malcolm a few weeks ago. But we decided that the topic was too lengthy to tackle at the time, and so we're reconvening today for a more thorough discussion about profiling the Ripper. I should state from the outset that none of us here today are by any means experts. We're Ripperologists. So I direct any comments about what we say today to the Casebook message boards or the thread on JTR forums. So if there are any errors, or if you're more of an expert than we are, you can point them all out for us. Now, John Reese gave a talk at the Whitechapel Society last December entitled A Century Apart Profiles of Jack the Ripper, which we released as a podcast. And in the beginning, you say, John, that the inspiration for your talk came from meeting with John Malcolm for a few pints in a pub. And I figured since both of you are here, you can tell us about how that conversation came about. So it, it wasn't quite the inspiration uh, for it. Um, so what it was, I'd been asked by the uh, Whitechapel Society if I would uh, come and do their, their Christmas uh, talk for them. And because uh, I'm currently writing um, a book, The Complete History of Criminal Profiling, it made sense to do something on uh the profiles of Jack the Ripper. Um, so I focused on the profile by Thomas Bond from 1888 and then the one that John Douglas, the FBI, did uh, in 1988. Um, and then it was uh, about two months before the talk. I'd, I'd actually been, you know, quite uh, a well-behaved researcher, you know. I had written my talk and I'd uh, arranged to meet uh, Mr. Malcolm in a pub in Swansea. So we're sitting in um, the No Sign Wine Bar in Swansea. Uh, I think John was enjoying a Guinness. I was on a, a Kuru Braff, one of the local beers. Mm. And uh, we got on to the subject of my uh, Whitechapel Society talk. And I basically said that I was going to come down hard on um, the the FBI profile. Oh, it's a load of nonsense. There's nothing scientific about it at all. Bald and ash, all that. And uh, so, so John had a different point of view. Um, so I'll, I'll let him explain uh, that. Um, my point of view is that I, I think that there are um, relative merits um, to the FBI's profiling program, especially in the earlier days, I think it's actually probably less effective now because it's kind of like um, fingerprint technology. Once that became public knowledge and widespread knowledge that it, it kind of it became, I mean, fingerprint technology obviously still catches criminals, but, you know, smart criminals will wipe down crime scenes and all that. And and I think with psychological pro- profiles, I think it's similar that I, I, I think in its early days, it may have been more effective than it is today. And I do, I, I mean, going back to the roots of it, I mean, it's not, um, I mean, Roy Hazelwood, the, 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 the late Roy Hazelwood said it's more of an art than it is as, as a science, which you can, you can interpret that in a couple of different ways as well, because you could say, well, okay, it's, there's no scientific basis in it. But I think 
the art evolved from data and not just kind of musing about these things i think i think there there's a there was a lot of study and a lot of statistics that went into how criminal profilers went about their their business doing this and 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 so i think it was it's 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 based in statistics when you when you compare um different criminals different crime scenes different murders different aspects of these things and you compile commonalities and from that you, you, you th- that's the i think the basis of where these the, the the art comes into it of course the art becomes much more subjective than the science so i think that if you if you bring it right back to its roots i do think it has more merit than it generally gets credit for but I, I again, I think that's that goes back to the early the earlier days where people are just people who have experience in it, whether it be interviewing um, murderers or criminals and just amassing s- statistical kind of data to have, you know form a basis of where they where they start. It, it it obviously can get very hairy when you start, you know, the more subjective, the more you start to kind of use your imagination. So you, you, it's, it's, um, it is kind of a precarious kind of, kind of thing. And, and, and it's not something that is a science strictly. Certainly it isn't, you know, and I think Roy Hazelwood, when he said it's more of an art than a science is probably, it, it is probably slightly more an art than a science. And in that respect, you can't really, see it as something that's that's reliable yeah i agree because they're using past cases um of a similar type and compiling these past cases to give a general um offender type the pool the gene pool of past cases will start to become really diluted the more and more uh, offenders um, change their behavior because of the knowledge of profiling <laughs> existing, like you had kind of said. So, so is that why it, it might have been more useful in the early days? But as we get into more deeply into this CSI culture that we are now in, it'll just get diminished. Essentially, they're going to have to come up with something different, right? It's also based on a specific type of serial killer, and that's an incarcerated serial killer. So these are serial killers that have been caught. They are failed serial killers. So it's quite possible that there are numerous serial killers that don't fit any of the established profiling patterns because they are successful. They've never been caught. So we just don't know about them. I think that's, I think that's definitely a great point. And I think especially that especially applies to modern cases compared in my opinion compared to the older cases you know i think the popular opinion is that um you can't use modern day profiling techniques to look back at a 130 year old case whereas i look at the opposite way and i think that it's it is probably more would be likely more likely to be accurate looking 
retrospectively back there when there was virtually no kind of profiling as opposed to today where it's um you know i do think i think that its effectiveness has has been greatly diminished since it's become such a sport you know and it seems like every little small town police department has a profiler which seems to you know it just it doesn't like i said i mean you'd have to be a really really dumb serial killer not to know that 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 these tools are out there to find you you know i mean especially today and and that's why i think my my whole take on it is is that i i do think you could apply some of these because it's all about common sense for the most part i mean you're you're compiling data you're looking at these things and and of course now i'm gonna have to rethink everything about you know what john said about having only incarcerated serial killers because uh, that that really does that really does put a put a different light on everything because yeah you you only you only have a perspective dealing with the ones that were caught and the FBI study only focuses on is it thirty six or thirty nine um, serial killers so it's quite, still quite a limited mm-hmm. sample um, and the other thing I'd say as well is that even though you said you know it's probably easier to apply this the principles of profiling established in the 70s to Jack the Ripper than it would be to cases now. Um, You do have the fact that 1888 London was very different from 1960s and 1970s California. Um, And um, Douglas, in his book, The Cases That Haunt Us, where he goes into a lot more detail on the profile than what was um, Mm -hmm. published, he actually acknowledges some things he would change in the profile having learned more about the time and the place. Mm -hmm. One thing that comes immediately to mind is when you're trying to put an age range to a murderer. And I say that because if you, I mean, I think that would be one thing you would have to take into consideration looking back to 1888. I mean, life expectancy. I mean, people, people matured much earlier. I mean, people were being married at very, very young ages, that the life expectancy was very short. So life was compressed to that point where I think that would have a direct relevant kind of impact on how you would you would determine an age of a serial killer, especially today, I think. And that's just just one example of looking back at how, you know, the age that people got married, the age that people went to work, the age that 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 people um, died that puts a, a a completely different look at you know age the age wise and that's just one factor so i mean you could you could apply that to all di- all kinds of different things i mean and i think especially with like geographic profiling which i'm not a fan of at all as far as looking back you know i think geographic profiling is a little more relevant today than it, than it would have been looking back at crimes as a, and I, I see the kind of opposite of of psychological profiles. But but all of those things would, which you know Douglas acknowledges can factor in. I, I but I think if you take it right down to the the basic human psychology, there are certain patterns. John, obviously, you're going to know a lot more about this than me. So I'm just kind of I'm just kind of like groping in the dark sometimes about this. Um, I think human psychology probably has not changed as much as the physical conditions 
Hmm. I, I mean, I could be I could be wrong about that, but I mean, the human conditions. I mean, obviously, we have not evolved to the point where where we're still not killing each other on large scales on a daily basis. You know, so in 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 that respect, I think you, if you take both of those factors into consideration, that uh, yeah, you you have to look at you have to look at all of this in from different angles. Well, I'd yeah. like to discuss um, the Bond profile, for lack of a better term, and then the FBI profile done a hundred years later by John Douglas, and how we believe it could be useful in the Ripper case. For a little bit of background for our listeners, behavioral profiling involves two parts, essentially. It it is uh, if this occurs, then this is likely kind of a scenario. And that's in inductive profiling, which is the most common form that you hear. So for example, if uh, a mod, if, if a investigator goes to a crime scene and the crime scene is really sloppy and the victim struggled and everything's broken and it looks like all hell broke loose, that might indicate to a profiler that it's an early inexperienced attack and, and then, and also may possibly have been committed by a youthful offender. So they take observations of the crime scene and apply those observations to reach a conclusion about the type of offender that possibly could have committed the crime. Okay. So it's an if this, then that. And those two parts put together is what would make a profile. Now, internally, one would expect when a profiler is working with law enforcement, they would talk about what they observed at the crime scene or in Bond's case, what he read in a report and why a certain thing he observed or read leads him to make certain conclusions he makes. But in Bond's report, we don't get that. What Bond gives us, in my opinion, <clears throat> is not a complete profile by leaving out the premises on which he bases his conclusions. Instead, he's just giving us a list of conclusions. And his conclusions are all five murders were committed with the same hand, but he doesn't state how he reaches this conclusion. All the women were laying down when murdered. Now, he says all the circumstances led him to this belief, but he doesn't tell us what those circumstances were. He states in his report that the first four cases, the murderer must have attacked from the right, but he doesn't say why. He only details the Kelly murder, which because of the position of the bed against the wall, he believes the killer attacked from the left. And then he says that the killer possesses no scientific or anatomical knowledge and not even the experience of a butcher or a horse slaughterer, but he doesn't say why. And I could go on and on. I mean, um, he gets to the end and says that the murderer is a quiet, inoffensive-looking man, middle-aged, neatly dressed, solitary, living amongst respectable people, yada, yada, yada. But we are not told 
what he observed or read in the reports to lead him to those conclusions. So while Bond's report is referred to as an early example and perhaps the earliest attempt to profile a serial killer, since he doesn't state specific crime scene characteristics, I'm not sure modern-day ripperologists can come to a conclusion on whether or not his his conclusions are valid. And I would say the same goes for the FBI profile done by John Douglas, which in my opinion is is even somewhat worse than than Dr. Bonds, in that Douglas seems to be giving us a deductive profile where he would state um this is a fact and therefore my conclusions are a fact. And he does this just by with the language he uses. Um, Douglas says he does not look out of the ordinary. So Douglas is stating a fact. He comes from a family with a domineering mother. Well, how does Douglas reach that conclusion? He's, he is employed Monday through Friday, according to Douglas. Oh. Actually, so he does these absolutes, which would, which we're supposed to say, okay, well, he must have seen something that's true. The premise that Douglas states, um, con- it concludes in a fact, ergo must be based on a fact. And, and we just don't get the other side of that information. So how are we supposed to judge the validity of his conclusions? So these the, these statements um, are uh, what what you've raised is one of the most common criticisms of um, behavioural profiling, and the, these are what what's called common sense statements. Um, so they don't seem to be based on any particular um, evidence. There's no reasoning behind them, but they're just common sense things. So. Perfect example of this is uh, the thing: the murderer must have had great physical strength. How do they establish that? Well, you know, if he could overpower a woman and he decapitate her, he must have had great physical strength. Um, the murder murderer must have been neatly and respectfully dressed. Well, because he um, would they have gone off with you know a lunatic uh, foaming at the mouth in torn, dirty, smelly clothes? No reasoning behind it at all demonstrated it's just they just throw them in the mix and yeah well well so you're you're admitting that um in internal profiles then are just sweeping generalizations yeah yeah pretty much um the thing is john douglas admits it as well so douglas says in his book the cases that haunt us uh these are the superficial characteristics true of a lot of people, they're almost boilerplate for a certain type of offender. He uh, he fully admits the fact that they're not very specific and they're very general and they apply to three quarters of the population. So it's, it's as useful or possibly even less useful than a Department of Motor Vehicles running a report on the number of people that drive a certain kind of car in a certain in a certain city possibly seen in the area of a specific murder location probably less useful than that the, the fbi yeah. 
Um, their, their philosophy seems to be that the profile won't catch the killer, but it might direct the investigation. So um, if uh, they say the killer is between the ages of 30 and 40, it's to direct the investigation, but so the, uh, the police won't look at 50-year-old men. Um, it's to narrow it down. And as uh, you said, it, it, I think earlier, it doesn't always do that. Sometimes they are wrong. When in certain cases, what it actually does is distract the police and send them down the wrong roads to go down, leaving the offender to continue committing murders. Like, for example, um, in the Beltway Sniper case, there was a report. The Beltway Sniper case uh, was a, a series of uh, sniper attacks on individuals in the Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area um, when they were doing things like pumping gas, sitting at a bus station, putting their groceries in the back of their car at a grocery store, things like that. Um, because a white van was seen um, in the general vicinity of the first couple of crimes, the profilers uh, working with the police directed them to be looking for um, anyone that's driving a white van. And at the same time, and, and this is a kind of what uh, we John Malcolm was alluding to earlier as far as it getting diluted, every retired FBI profiler on the face of the earth hopped on television and started giving their profiles while the offender was still active, saying that they're a white male, probably married, upset about something, we don't know what, you know, mad at the world, um, which causes the general public to be on the lookout for those types of people. Yeah. Oh, my neighbor drives a white van. Uh, he's a white guy who yells at his kids from time to time. When in all actuality, it was two black men driving a, a blue four-door passenger car who were committing these attacks. Yeah. So I guess my, my ultimate question is, is if, 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 uh, the, if we all admit that the profiles are just sweeping generalizations and they do have the ability to have a negative effect on a police investigation as opposed to being just one of one of several tools that police agencies can use to apprehend a criminal then why do we even bother with them why so yeah okay so let, let, let's break down the aspect to this profile because i think it's relevant to what we've already said before um so i don't know if it's the case um in america uh, but in britain the vast majority of vans on the road are white vans um <laughs> We, 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 we even have the phrase white van man, someone who drives a white van. Yeah. And you can't drive down a road without seeing a white van, particularly in a working day. Um, so that, the fact that a white van was seen near a crime scene is just, it's not relevant. It's a coincidence. Angry with the world. Well, that again is a common sense statement. If you're going around randomly shooting people, 
um, you probably have got some kind of anger with something. So <laughs> it, it's not, it doesn't help direct the investigation at all. It's just a common sense statement. And, you know, there's a lot of middle-aged white people in vans with, you know, who are angry at society and the world. It, it doesn't help. And we'll get back to the Ripper here in a second, but <laughs> just to continue on the Beltway Sniper case, a couple other things occurred when criminal profilers started going on television, including Kim Rossmo, who was working, doing a geographical profile for the Maryland Police Department at the time. So not only did you have former agents on television giving their profile, but you actually had the profilers working within the department on the case giving their profile. Anyway, um, so, uh, you know, a profiler went on television and said, oh, well, the Beltway Sniper must have a God complex. And so at the very next murder scene, they left a tarot card, which, which on the back read, I am God. Okay. Then the um, chief of police went on television and said, all of the school children are safe. We're going to have... Uh, police escorts at all the buses, you know, don't worry about your kids. They'll be safe if you take them to school. To try to calm the absolute panic that was occurring in the community at the time. And then what happened? The very next victim was a 13-year-old boy getting dropped off at a middle school. Shot through the chest. And so here is 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 a case where the profilers, rather than helping the investigation or calming the fears of the community or saying, don't worry about these types of people because the offender has to be this type of person, actually encouraged the, the murderers to change their behavior in, in a game of cat and mouse, almost yeah. with the profilers themselves. So. Well, well, yeah, that's um. I mean, that's fundamentally stupid f- to go on television in any capacity and tell the public who you're looking for. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense on on a practical level, and it, it's just stupid on every level. Um, I don't know how many of these retired profilers. Were, were actually working with the police and how many were just kind of grandstanding, you know, because it, it, it doesn't make sense that, that you're going to make public w- who you're looking for. You know, I mean, you, you, it's, it's, it's up to law enforcement to discover these criminals. Not You want tips from the public, but you don't want to, you know, you almost wonder if any of this was like – purpose purposeful misinformation so the the killers would continue doing what they were doing um thinking that they weren't going to be the targets of investigations um and it kind of if you look back at the reticence of the metropolitan police in the in the jack the ripper case um it explains a lot for them not to want to have any information out there at all because they understood that 
it, it, it's, it does more harm than good because obviously if the public is being informed of these profiles and these, these white vans and these white males who are angry, um, it, you know, it, the, the, the murderers, I mean, they're, <laughs> are going to know about this and they are, they're definitely going to change their things. So you, you wonder how much of, of, uh, especially, and I think that's, that's one reason why, um, uh, behavioral behavioral profiling is is been diminished in its effectiveness is the fact that it's just so public and if if some of these people like John Douglas may have been a pioneer in this field but he's done it no service to make it public you know to to really to to uh it, it just it 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 seems counterintuitive to let criminals know the techniques you're using to try to um, identify them. It just it it, um, it 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 only seems it only seems to diminish the effective effectiveness potentially. And and I and and I see why that um, you know it has such a, a, a you know when you say profiling you know there's a lot of people scoffing at that, which which I have a tendency. You know, when you see all of these, any 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 crime, you see, oh, you see underneath, this is so-and-so from such-and-such such a department, um, former profiler, criminal profiler, whatever, and, and they're making <laughs> these things public. It just seems to kind of defeat the purpose of it to me. I, I mean... Yeah, and, and you don't know, I mean, like, they, they're playing a very tricky um, game with, with these... Um, with these murderers, because on the one hand, it almost seems like, you know, when a, when a profiler goes on TV and, you know, calls the killer a coward or, you know, engages in name calling and things like that, it's almost like they're hoping to provoke the killer to commit another murder in the hopes that at it's that murder that in which they make a mistake and are able to get apprehended. And, and, and then on the other side of that, you also have the police, like in the case of the BTK killer in Wichita, where they would go on TV and, and engage in a dialogue with BTK, knowing that he would be watching the news program in, in, in the hopes that further communication with the authorities leads to the offender making a mistake, which leads to his arrest, which is luckily what happened with the BTK case before he was able to commit another crime. Um, in, in the DC sniper case, they weren't so lucky because it actually encouraged the offenders to commit more crimes in a wider area. And so it is a delicate balance that they have to try to achieve. And so, yeah, you question why do they, they know they're playing this risky game, but I guess they, they sometimes feel themselves in a position to where they really have no choice but to go public Just uh, one more um, example of um, a profiler completely leading a police investigation down the wrong track. In 1992, um, a a young woman was murdered on Wimbledon Common. 
she was stabbed 49 times uh, in front of her son. And uh, a profiler who the Metropolitan Police were using, named Paul Britton, he basically led the police to target um, a local weirdo uh, named um, Colin Stagg as their preferred suspect. And Stagg was into um, rough sex, BDSM, that type of thing. Um, And Britton and the Met designed uh, a sting operation where they had an undercover police officer go undercover as a woman to um, make contact and make friendship and kind of hint at a relationship with Stag to get him to reveal his uh, depraved fantasies and try and get him to confess to the killings. Stag was completely innocent and they, profiling in the UK, basically lost a lot of reputation because of this the judge categorized it as a honey trap operation. Um, and uh, it wasn't until 2006 the actual murderer was identified by uh, DNA. Luckily, I say luckily, the uh, perpetrator, Robert Knapper, um, had been incarcerated for 12 years at that point. Um, he'd committed a, another brutal murder in '93. Um, and police had caught him for it. But if they hadn't, he could have been at large still. And But the police, all the police resources in Rachel McKell's murder, murder went on the local weirdo because of the profiler's advice. And the profiler as well, he, tried, he basically tried to fit him up with the police. Not quite fit him up, but he was the only suspect and um, they did this honey trap operation. So yeah, a profiler can really damage a case if they can be that convincing to the police and that sure of themselves that the police concentrate all their resources um, on a completely different suspect because the profiler is sure it's him and um, an innocent man nearly got convicted for it. Now, John Malcolm, before we go on to geographic profiling, I forget, did you have any uh, comments about when I was earlier discussing Thomas Bond's profile and and then the FBI profile as far as um, how suspect-based uh, ripperologists, um, in my opinion, maybe shouldn't view these two pieces of information as useful to um, identifying the perpetrator? Yeah, and, and like I said, I think that it's it's... It, it it might even be my opinion is that it's 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 probably more accurate to look back at past cases or, or potentially more accurate to look back at past cases as opposed to what's happening today and and it comes down to common sense i mean you look at whatever bond used as a criteria besides the notes i mean he did examine um the body of mary kelly but you wonder how differently if, if, you know, I mean, our opinions, whether we have particular suspects in mind or particular types of suspects, and, and we're basing it on a similar criteria. For, I mean, as far as what we know, you know, the details of these crimes that we know about. And you wonder how many of these, um, these traits 
that we would disagree with as far as whether it be age or whether it be race or whether it be um, employment, which um, one small little thing about um, Douglas saying that uh, Jack the Ripper was in regular work, their profile actually said that they, that the perpetrator was not in regular work. Um, and I remember a quote from Roy Hazelwood is going back to the, 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 um, the documentary in 18, in 18, in 1988, um, the uh, secret identity of, of Jack the Ripper. And, and they state that he was, he was not in regular work because of the, the, the patterns or lack of patterns in the murders. There were certain patterns, but, um, uh, I mean, when, when you think about, I mean, how, how differently do we think of, the potential murderer compared to what Thomas Bond said or what John Douglas and Roy Hazelwood said. I mean, obviously in my case, a lot of the things that apply. So, I mean, I, I take my subjectivity and, and, um, you know, admit that it may be using that to fit up my type of, of person. But I mean, how different is it? I mean, um, when you talk, you think it was a local person or, 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 if, or if not, I mean, we basically, if in common sense, which is, you know, and obviously a kind of a very loose term, especially these days, um, you know, would we, how many different conclusions would we come to if we had the same, um, set of facts in front of us? I mean, would there be a lot? I mean, I don't think, it, profiling isn't magic. And and when Roy Hazelwood said art, um, it kind of differentiates that from the kind of um, clairvoyant kind of thing that I think most profilers, or it seems like the most public profilers seem to have this air of clairvoyance about them, that um, that is dangerous, certainly when it comes to things like that. I think, I think Thomas Bond was, uh, um, I mean, his profile was, was pretty common sense. If you, if you look at what he said and I just, you know, I mean, that's the basis. I, I'm not I probably went way off the question at that point, but <laughs> no, I, I agree. And, and as I said earlier, I mean, I mean, I, it's not that I don't disagree with the conclusions that uh, the FBI or um, Thomas Bond made. It's it's the not knowing their reasonings behind their conclusions it, it yeah. is what makes me question um, the the profile in general. For example, surgical skill. Let let's say let's say that that. The way that the wounds were made on a victim, let's say that the weapon wasn't a typical knife um, blade. Let's say that the organ removal is without question done with some degree of skill. Let's say that um, evidence at the crime scene indicated that the killer was comfortable using like a scalpel type um, blade to deliberately remove a particular organ that they targeted. From those truths about the, the victim, you could 
then draw the conclusion that the offender had medical, some medical knowledge. Okay. So in Bond and Douglas's profile, we're given the opposite. Because of the character of the mutilations, it indicated that there is no scientific or anatomical knowledge possessed by the killer, according to Bond. And the same thing that Douglas says. So are we to extrapolate from that, that they made those determinations based on the type of blade the killer used um, and the messiness of the cuts at the time um, in the early morning hours in the, you know, in the corner of Mitre Square and that they maybe they haphazardly extracted um, the uterus of Catherine Eddowes. So you see what I'm saying? Are, are, are those crime scene indicators of that particular crime scene? Sh- should we, should we assume that that's what leads them to make these statements that the killer had no anatomical knowledge? I, if that's the case, I don't think necessarily that those exclude someone who had anatomical knowledge. I don't think that that's enough to blanketly exclude the killer possibly having anatomical knowledge. Not that I necessarily believe he did, but I'm saying that the, the, the inferences that they're drawing, you know, I would disagree with their, um, their premise if we knew that that's what they were saying. Um, So that, that's kind of why I think that, that, it's not that I necessarily disagree with their conclusions. It's just, it's just without knowing how they reach those conclusions, I don't find the profiles particularly helpful. Uh, so, so Douglas, in the cases that haunt us, does go into more detail about certain of his conclusions, how he came to them. Not all of them, uh, but certain ones. So I tend to treat the cases that haunt us, the cha- chapter on the Ripper, as kind of like being the footnotes to uh, the profile. Um, like he explains in more detail the age thing, but he also says he might be wrong about it. He explains the gender thing. Um, I think he goes into the way the victims, um, the way he, why he thinks Jack would be respectfully dressed, but then he kind of changes his mind. So that's there. The other interesting thing I find about the two profiles, and I mentioned this in my talk, is I've, I've identified what I think are 10 comparable points between the two profiles. Some of them are a little bit of a stretch, but there's 10 things that you can kind of compare um, because they're similar enough aspects of the Ripper, his behavior, his personality, or even his physicality. Um, And out of that, I think six of them are pretty much spot on matches. Six out of 10, you know, it's not bad um, for, for, you know, them being similar. So they are, fairly similar in some of the conclusions um so yeah i just wanted to relate that a bit Mm -hmm. going back to um excluding certain people um by assuming there was no anatomical um skill or knowledge um i just thought of a scenario where if you were a mad surgeon who was used to if your if surgery was your profession 
you were used to precision and you know taking your time because lives are at stake and if you were a mad surgeon you could theoretically just let loose <laughs> your frustrations and it would not translate in murdering a, a, a victim and mutilating a victim um it wouldn't show any kind of necessary um anatomical skill or knowledge if that was your if 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 you were separating that from your profession because if you were a mad surgeon or a mad doctor um you're not performing you could perform your any, any operation um in the course of your job as opposed to taking your frustrations out on on an innocent victim um your skill or knowledge wouldn't wouldn't show you know it wouldn't so so you can't you know playing the devil's advocate sort of you, you couldn't exclude a mad surgeon in any circumstance um because there was no um evidence of skill or or knowledge you know so that doesn't that doesn't necessarily exclude that it was just a thought that popped into my head yeah. so if you know i mean um yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, it, it, obviously, profiling is 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 limited, and it's limited by so many human factors. Who is doing it? What what are the what is their background? What is the data that they've um, analyzed? And how much common sense do they have? Which obviously that's not a, a measurable kind of uh, trait. Um, so it. You know, it, it's not a scientific thing. It, it is not a scientific thing at the end of the day. There's science involved, but there's still a lot of guesswork. So, you know, it's obviously not reliable. And, and you wonder how many of these circumstances where um, police departments hire profilers um, because it's of some kind of monetary constraints you look at how much money you want to spend and, and whether or not these people are brought in to focus an investigation only because of lack of funds to make a a more broad kind of thing i mean it's 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 a lot of things that i really haven't thought a lot about until very very recently and some not even until tonight um i don't think it's right to say behavioral profiling has no merits but I don't think it's right to say that, yes, this is a completely valid kind of thing. It, it's, it's all, it's not necessarily, you know, I mean, it comes down to, it, you know, who you trust, basically. Profiles, whether they're behavioral profiles or geographic profiles, they attempt to give authorities a probability that the offender is a certain type of person in behavioral profiles like we were saying, based on an average offender that's committed similar crimes, or in geographical profiling that the offender lives in a certain general area. And this is based on the location of the initial crimes or abductions or based on body dumping sites. Like, for example, Ridgeway, the Green River Killers dumping sites, started further away from his home and then over time he chose dump sites that were in exceedingly closer and closer proximity to his home. 
So when looking at serial killers with body dump sites, for example, profilers could determine that the sites containing the more recent victims might be located near to the place where the killer lives. Uh, again, because they would be using Gary Ridgway's uh, behavior as an example of uh, offender behavior, right? Um, now, geographic profiling is an attempt to narrow down a, what they call a suspect's anchor point by balancing the locations of his victims and his comfort zone under the hypothesis that a serial killer wants to remain unknown and anonymous and unrecognized where he commits the crimes, but also near enough to his anchor point, most typically thought of as his home, to provide himself a sense of safety. Okay? So that's why in the maps... Uh, that we see in Ripper documentaries, like the one with Laura Richards, for example, and I'm sure there's a couple others, you see the hot zones of where the uh, five of canonical five victims are found, surrounded by like a blue zone. And then in the middle of the blue zone, there's the red zone. That's the anchor point where... They're not quite um, shitting on their own doorstep, but they're not going too far away either, okay? If you all remember those things. Um, now, in uh, 1994, David Cantor, um, uh, the British uh, criminologist profiler, published Criminal Shadows Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer, in which he discusses the Ripper murders and geographic profiling. But his book limits the discussion of the suspects to James Maybrick, uh, basically saying that if he were Jack the Ripper, he'd be a rare commuter killer, because Maybrick obviously lived in Liverpool. And um, Aaron Kosminski, whom Cantor seems to say has more going for him in the book, given the locations where he lived with his brother and his family, the Kosminski family which we discussed with John Malcolm on um, the, the Whitechapel Murders Another Dead End episode. Um, but then later, Cantor turns his attention to the Maybrick Diary, it, uh, using content analysis to try to determine what type of mind wrote it. And um, Cantor calls the author of the diary basically a really nasty person and someone who's angry and vicious, and if he's not the Whitechapel murderer, he's developing through the stages that a vicious criminal will go through, quote unquote. So Cantor, for the sake of our listeners, has jumped on the Maybrick bandwagon, right? Um, but um, in his, in Cantor's um, geographic profile, he uses what he calls mental mapping which is using the geographical evidence profiling to state that Jack the Ripper almost certainly, almost certainly had a base in the area in Whitechapel 
And so um, without going into too much detail on, on how geographical profiling works, maybe one of you would be better to explain it than I will, but it is, is, is essentially um, breaking up an area of operation into a grid-like pattern and, and, um, and then taking the series of crimes and there are, I, I know I'm, I'm kind of going to be long winded here, but it's necessary to explain how this works. Um, there, there's theoretical, um, assumptions that have to be used for a geographical profile to work. Okay. Um, one, the series of murders has to contain at least five crimes um, committed by the same offender. So in Jack the Ripper geographical profiles, you typically only see the five canonical victims. So right from the outset, they're starting with the most minimum number of victims required to produce an accurate pattern detection of, of where an, where the anchor might be located, right? So right off the bat with Jack the Ripper, they're starting at a disadvantage. Okay. And then this, this, and these are the, um, these were the, the, uh, the standards developed by Kim Rossimo. Okay. Um, for an accurate geographical profile is what I'm, what I'm getting into. Um, this, um, secondly, the series needs to be a complete series and any missing crimes cannot be based outside of the zone of the killer of the murders that we're dealing with here. So again, with the Ripper crimes, by using only five victims in to the exclusion of, let's say, a Martha Tabram or a Mackenzie or a Coles or something like that, including more than five victims of the Ripper might shift the heat map as to where they believe that, that, that the killer might be located, his anchor point. And then the offender has to have a single stable anchor, anchor point over the ser series of all of the crimes. Which I'm not sure if Kosminski necessarily stayed in the same location during the entire Autumn of Terror. Um, but if he moved around, or if any offender moved around, then that would make the anchor point, obviously, of the offender null and void. The offender even having an anchor point to begin with, for example. We know that the Whitechapel murders were committed in the early morning hours, does the fact that the murders happened at that time of day point to someone who has a home or could it also as equally point to someone who may have been homeless? So just, just by assuming that the killer had an anchor point at the be to begin with is an assumption that some ripperologists might disagree with. Before I get out of breath, I mean, that's a, what geogra geographical profiling is attempting to do with the Ripper case. And to me, it throws up a lot of red flags, literally at every step of the way. 
Yeah. So um, just a very brief bit of background to the geographical profile, the, the principle behind it. Canta was uh, initially an, um, an architectural psychologist um, and uh, he founded the Journal of Environmental Psychology. The principle behind it is if you ask someone to draw a map of the town they grew up in, they would start drawing it at their childhood home. Um, if you ask someone to draw a map of a certain city, they'll start drawing it at a significant part of them, might be their place of work or where they live, etc. Um, so that's kind of what he based the idea on, that murderers, when branching out from their crimes, they would have a central significant point they'd start from, and they'd kind of go, there'd be a buffer zone where they wouldn't commit crimes, um, because it was too close to home, but there'd be an outer area um, where they, they would tend to target their victims. And it also applies to burglaries as well. Um, it's actually, with burglar, burglars, it does tend to follow a similar pattern. An area like Whitechapel has such a massive, overcrowded population. Uh, the fact the murderer lived on Middlesex Street, which Cantor said, or uh, Kim Kim Rossmo, is it? Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah, he said Flower and Dean Street, Frawl Street, Fashion Street. Right, he gave like a much larger area. Yeah, yeah, but massively overcrowded streets. Flower and Dean Street had over 30 lodging houses. Um, it, it it doesn't help narrow it down. Um, and then as well, um, because we know it was quite a transitory population, um, we don't know if Jack the Ripper had a regular home. He might have gone about lodging houses, different one every night. He might not have lived in the same home in August that he did in uh, November. So it kind of falls at those hurdles straight away, really. But the, ge uh, the geographical profile does have some merit uh, because it can be used to help, you know, predict burglars' locations. And with King Kim Rossmo's, um, his uh, formula in particular is used can be used to. Um, predict patterns of uh, predatory behavior in sharks apparently um I, i've read so it, it's useful for that but yeah in jack the ripper i'm not sure i believe initially um kim rossimo um saw um the geographical profiling done, done by someone else i forget who it was but some another canadian um um, profiler in which they were trying to predict the next place that the killer struck yeah. not and, and then he he saw this um this system of trying to predict the the next location of the attack and thought well well why don't we just turn that around and and go backwards from that and instead of trying to predict where the killer will strike next we try to predict where the killer is coming from. Mm. And, um, but, but another problem that we have with the Ripper crimes, um, on top of mentioning just the fact that the geographical profiles are based on him having five victims and five victims only, is that, um, it supposes that the hunting method, um, of the killer required that he not venture too far for his search for a victim. So in the Ripper case, we certainly, we don't know how far the, the killer actually traveled. 
Um, we do know that he walked a fair distance between Liz Stride and Eddowes on the night of the double event. And we know his direction of travel from uh, going to Goulston Street. But I'd suggest too little is known about the about Jack the Ripper's search for a victim to accurately pinpoint a specific street where he was based. And, and then, and then if you throw in like, um, a stalker type behavior, right? Let's say that not like, um, BTK, you know, he would, um, he'd, he'd find his victim sometimes months in advance. Um, and he would stalk the victim's movements, you know? Um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that the Ripper could have targeted Annie Chapman days before her death and and then and then saw her and followed her uh, to the location where um, she was murdered so so um, by geographical profiling eliminating, even the possibility that the Ripper could have been engaged in some kind of stalker behavior of some type, which granted there's no evidence for, but there's no evidence against it either. Um, it kind of also throws a wrench into the whole geographic profiling thing because we don't know how far he ventured from home. Um, and, and yeah. And, and one other thing, and is, is that, um, geographical profiling also, and this is relevant to Ripperology today, it also assumes that, that, um, that there is what profilers call a target black cloth over all of the victims which is that all of the victims were targeted because they were prostitutes and and that prostitutes were are uniformly distributed over the area of the hunting ground okay so this idea that the murderer consciously attacked prostitutes and so that their area of operations is limited to where they are bound to find prostitutes. Hmm. And so we know that the suggestion that the Ripper was strictly a prostitute killer, as opposed to just an any type of woman killer, is, is open to debate in Ripperology. So, th- so this, so this requirement that all of the victims be prostitute, it's like, um, geographical profiling of the Yorkshire Ripper, you know, his victims were all targeted in red light districts. Um, it's that idea. Um, so, so when we don't have an agreed upon victim profile, um, in Ripperology, then, then I don't think geographical profiling can be applied Obviously, the Ripper wasn't operating in what we would term as a red light district. Hmm. Um, because Bucks Row, yes, while Aberline said, you know, it's an area known for prostitution and, 
you know, and um, people who lived there said that Bucks Row, uh, you know, had, you know, women, women walking in and, you know, it was, it was alluded to the fact that, that there was an, an area of prostitution. We're pretty much under the, the idea that, that the street was deserted when Marianne Nichols was murdered. Yeah. Um, so, so this, this idea of a black cloth, um, uh, that could, that could be laid over the Ripper's hunting ground, um, in, in, in which prostitutes were uniformly distributed over the area and that he only selected prostitutes to the exclusion of all other women, um, is I think a highly debatable point. Uh, it's also possible that Mary Kelly would throw a spanner in the statistical works, as it were, um, because unless, of course, um, he broke into her room or was picked up, she uh, he picked her up immediately outside Miller's Court, a la, you know, Hutchinson's statement, um, he wouldn't necessarily have been hunting for her in that area. Um, Jack the Ripper might have met Mary Kelly Three or four streets away, for all we know. Yes. Uh, and, and then Mary Care and Mary Kelly could have lived if Mary Kelly had lived three or four streets away from where she actually did. Yeah. It would move the center of the anchor point. She determined the location of her murder, as it were, by living there. Yes. Um, you know, unless, of course, you know, um, I'm not sure how close you know it has to be to be accurate you know perhaps if hutchinson did see her being accosted by her murderer in the street then if that would still apply but otherwise you know we can't be certain Mm -hmm. but any shift in in the anchor point that Mm. the geographical profiler has determined i mean especially in the case of david Cantor. Where you have him saying that the the according to his geographical profile, the murderer lived on Middlesex Street, and so therefore the only killer who is known to have mentioned Middlesex Street is James Maybrick in the Ripper Diary. Ergo, James Maybrick is Jack the Ripper. Follow the money. <laughs> Follow the money. <laughs> so Cantor can only support Maybrook's candidacy as as the Ripper if the if the diary is genuine, since he needs Middlesex Street because it's the hottest area on his heat map as the killer's anchor. I, I would be interested to know if Cantor was giving in any type of control sample. Yeah, would he be able to distinguish between the Maybrick diary, you know, oh, it was written by someone, you know, who had violent tendencies and stuff, if it was written by a very, very good writer, if you had an experienced crime author who's used to writing, you know, some very violent content, could he distinguish between that? If, you know, or if you had Quentin Tarantino do his worst and write out, you know, a page of dialogue, um, you know, would Cantor have said the same thing? I, you know, I think there should have been some kind of control there for Cantor to say, "Oh yes, the Maybrick Diary was written by a deranged individual." 
Oh yeah, um, I, I totally agree. And and you know when he uses such language as you know, well, if, if the author of the diary is not a murderer, then he he's developing a contact with the idea of murder. Uh, you know, it's like almost like. It may, you know, if people believe Mike Barrett was the author of the diary, then it it certainly paints <laughs> Mike Barrett as, you know, a complete and utter psychopath um, and probably a killer. Uh, so, yeah, it's just um, now uh, Cantor, um, you know, <laughs> appeared later in at the uh, trial of Maybrook. Um mm-hmm. In, in Liverpool in 2007. And, um, and he, when he gave his talk, um, about, um, geographic profiling and the, that the murderer lived in Middlesex Street, you know, it is, um, notable that, um, he was challenged on this idea by, uh, ripperologist Alan Sharp. Basically, um, Sharp was questioning the, the Cantor on his logic um, that the author of the Maybrick diary that would it, wouldn't have chosen Middlesex Street, you know, anyway. I mean, Alan Sharp's point was basically that anyone who opened a map of Whitechapel would immediately see that Middlesex ran right through the center of it. Yeah. So the idea that the author of the diary picked Middlesex Street, um, you know, as some, um, you know, as being totally improbable. I mean, just just the the basis of the diary author naming Middlesex Street at all, you know, as being anything out of the ordinary um, was, uh, you know, Sharp uh, called that into question. Um, and Can- Cantor was unable to, um, to argue, uh, you know, his point to Alan Sharp. And we're back, recall. and we're back to common sense statements. You know, Middlesex Street is right in the middle, you know, therefore it's common sense Jack the Ripper might have lived there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ge- so geographical profiling, although it might look pretty, and um and and look convincing you know on tv there there's just too many things against it and and being um useful at all um in the case of jack the ripper yeah i i i I agree with that i think in other cases it's probably very useful um but because of you know the isolated area we're talking about it's it's not at all um useful um so yeah oh that's exactly how i feel i mean you you can you can look at a map of Whitechapel and the and and the murder sites and from above it looks like a fairly small area but if you actually walk this if you're actually there it you need to do that to actually realize how small an area this actually is and that's why, you know, geographic profiling, I think, is just has absolutely no um, 
no merit when it comes to these cases because the area is just too small. It's like trying to pinpoint which flat the the murderer lived in, uh, you know, or d- down to the inch. It's just really, it's just, uh, it's impossible. I mean, every, you could have had any, been within a 10 minute walking distance of any of these murders and haven't been on either side of any of them. I mean, it's just, it's just a, a really, really tiny area and it's just pointless, I think, to try to, to try to pinpoint on any level because just the criteria you use to come to these determinations. A lot of times, um, it's the first crime, you know, people talk about, well, the first crime is, you know, and, and how do you determine what the first crime is? If you look at, um, it was the first crime, Polly Nichols, because then, that's 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 on the outskirts of the kind of circle that you see um or was it martha tabram or emma smith which is right smack in the middle of all the rest of them but it's just everything i mean it's just such a tiny tiny area that it's it 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 just it it doesn't make any sense to try to that that you could rationally kind of pinpoint what street he lived in i mean i i think there's to me, there's no question that he lived right in that area, right within, you know, within a stone's throw of all of these murders. But that's not saying much. I mean, that's all that's that's it's just a, a tiny, tiny area. Well, from what I recall, one of Cantor's, um criteria or, or one of the things he's observed is for the first murder, the killer will actually go slightly further afield um for the first killing and then he'll come a bit closer in to the, in the circle for the uh, for the others yeah but yeah right. but but then again who do you you know you could pick any any one of those murders and yeah. you know and and as a starting point but everything is just so close everything yeah. is just so close that it just it's just um yeah, I, I think it's pointless to try to apply that. And I do think it does, uh, geographic profiling does have its merits, I, certainly. I mean, but in this case, I just, I just don't think, I don't think it's, it's relative at all. Other than saying, yeah, yeah, the murderer came from this general vicinity. I mean, because I mean, you could just say, I mean, take a larger geographical profile, whether it be the Beltway Sniper or um, Ridgeway or Bundy or, or anybody, and you're talking about miles and miles that you're kind of putting these things, um, it, it, trying to get a perspective on, not within, you know... <laughs> A, a, a tiny, tiny circle, you know, it's just, um, it's just the, the closer you get to that center is, is, um, I mean, they're all close to the center. I mean, you could put the center any place around there and include or exclude any one of the Whitechapel murders. And, and it could be from Flower and Dean street to Thrall street to Middlesex street to, um, Greenfield street or, or any of them. And they're, they're all right there. They're all right there. And you've still got hundreds of people living in those areas, you know, with 30, over 30 lodging houses on Flower and Dean Street alone. It, yeah, it just doesn't help. Yeah. And and it assumes that the the killer was a local. Oh, yeah. It, it yeah. completely excludes the possibility that it was a commuter killer. If if that's the case, why why would anyone concentrate on that tiny tiny area in that short span of time if they were a commuter when they could commute almost anywhere and go to a place that's 
much less likely to be under the microscope as far as law enforcement goes. I mean, uh, I think it's a no-brainer that whoever was committing these murders lived right, right in the heart of that area, you know. But the heart of that area is, you know, is 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 pretty well populated. There's no question about that. But uh, yeah, the commuter thing just it just doesn't make any sense to me on any level. So it yeah. wasn't Sickert um, coming from France then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still considering that, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, oh, God. Okay, well, do you guys think this is a good place to wrap it up? I, I think it is, yeah. Well, thank you, John Reese and John Malcolm, for being on the show today. Always a pleasure, Jonathan. Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely appreciate the opportunity anytime. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you'll find over 160 roundtable discussions, author interviews, conference presentations, Whitechapel Society meetings, and archive tapes, all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast.